And that's what I want our topic to be this morning, the doctrine of salvation. We know from God's Word, Luke 19.10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. When the shepherds announced, or when the angels announced to the shepherds the birth of our Lord and Savior, in Luke 2.11, says, unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord which is the Messiah, Jehovah himself, is what that verse declares to us. He came to restore, the Lord Jesus Christ did, he came to restore that which the first Adam lost. He came to restore that perfect relationship that you can have with God. There is nothing in this world, there is nothing on this planet, there is nothing you will ever be able to accomplish that can be more important than that fact, is that God's desire is to have a relationship with you, and that relationship is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. What our Savior accomplished on the cross is the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. Turn with me there this morning. As we look at the doctrine of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. The he is God the Father. For God the Father has made him, God the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. To restore that relationship that the first Adam lost, the last Adam, he came to this earth, God himself wrapped in human flesh, in order to be that sacrifice, in order to pay that debt that I owe and that you owe. He made him to be sin for us. He didn't have any sin. But what God the Father recognized when Christ Jesus was hanging on Calvary's cross and he shed his blood, God acknowledged that he was dying for my sin and for your sin, He took upon himself your sin, my sin, our sin. He became sin for us, and he traded that, my sin, for his righteousness. You know, there are times when I don't really feel righteous. But aren't you glad your salvation this morning is not based on your feeling, but on the fact of God's faithfulness and what his word tells us? There are days I don't feel saved. I know I am. Not because I'm so spiritual, not because I'm so holy, but because He is. He took upon Himself my sin, and He gave me His righteousness in Christ. And that little phrase is so important, in us being in Him. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 
actually starts that whole theme. Isaiah 53. Tell me, start with verse 6. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, in the book of Corinthians, Paul is seeing the cross after the death of Christ, after the cross. Here, Isaiah is prophesying what the Messiah was going to do for the sins of the world. Upon him was laid the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their, their iniquities." Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What is salvation? It is being reconnected to God the Father, the one who loves us through the finished work of God the Son. See, what we're actually expressing when we talk about salvation, when we talk about being saved, what we're actually expressing is the realization when I say I'm saved, what I'm actually expressing is I have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. That's what I'm expressing. It is so much more than just saying, uh, I'm saved. I have the righteousness of Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. I didn't bring it on myself. It's not done because of any deed, any effort on my part. My salvation is secure because of who I am in Christ. Your salvation is secure this morning because of who you are in Christ. When I express to you that I am saved, what I am saying is that I have been made a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us, If any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. You know, for a long time, I changed that word creature, and I thought, that'd just sound better to say we're a new creation. I think it's beyond that. I think you're, you've been made a new creature. 
You're not the same, or you shouldn't be, when Christ comes into your life. You hear people talk about it all the time. Well, that person believed in the Lord, but, you know, they've, they walked away from their faith, or they're, they're, they're just not believers anymore. Of course, when people tell me that about those who've served the Lord for quite some time, I, I'm just glad that His Word tells us that, that even when we believe not, He remains faithful, for He can't deny Himself. That's... That's pretty amazing to me. But here when I say that we have been made new, uh, we've been made a new creature. I am not the same person that I once was. Of course, Paul tells the same group of carnal believers in the church in Corinth, he tells them to examine themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and I think this is important. As he's talking to these babes in Christ here in Corinth, verse 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be a reprobate. I think it's important that as believers that we examine ourselves. And that's what we want to do this morning. Why are we saved? How do I know I'm saved? I guarantee you, I can't rely on my works. I can't rely on how I feel. So how do we examine ourselves? We examine ourselves, we examine our beliefs, we examine our standing by God's Word. That's how we examine ourselves. What does God's Word say about my salvation, about our salvation? These things have been written unto us that we might know that we have eternal life. We take God at His, at His Word. And when I say that I'm saved not only am I saying I've made a new creature, not only am I saying that I have been uh, reconciled to God, I am saying that I am complete, complete in Christ. Colossians 2, verse 10, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in just a few seconds. But Colossians 2, 10 says, And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. The word complete means fulfilled completely. The word complete means to be fully satisfied, nothing lacking. You are complete in Christ, and there's absolutely nothing lacking in His all-sufficiency. Well, I don't feel saved. Boy, aren't you glad you're complete in Christ? Aren't you glad this morning that your salvation is not based on your feelings but on His faithfulness and on what He has done on your behalf, I know I am. It's not about trying really hard to make God happy. Our salvation is not all about doing deeds or take, making an effort. It's all about trusting Him and His complete work on Calvary's cross. Years ago, years ago, I had an opportunity to go to New Orleans to pass out tracts with, with our church back down in Alabama. And uh, the whole youth group, we went down and got a whole bunch of tracts and, and we went down to New Orleans. If you've never done it, let me tell you, it's an experience. This Alabama boy saw things that he never wants to see again. And 
it was interesting. But one of the guys, I went up to him and I, and, and I asked him, I, I said, are you saved? And he looked at me and he said, from what? From what? Now, he knew what I was talking about, but he started scoffing. He started ridiculing. He started mocking what we were there doing as we passed out tracks. And I think about that guy often because I was such a young Christian. I just stood there. Uh, where's the preacher? Where, where's that preacher? I, I need to know. What, what do I tell him when he says, saved from what? But today I would tell him that he is, are you saved from a Christless eternity? Are you saved from a life that is going to be alienated from God when God's invitation to you is to believe in him? And I think about that guy often. And we're talking 50 years ago. And I think about him often. I think, was the seed planted? Oh, I pray that somebody else came along and watered that seed. Oh, how I pray that God gave the increase. And at some point in this, because he was about my age, at some point he came to the realization of what it meant to be saved, to be reconnected with God, to be reconciled, no longer an enemy with God. Another guy I gave a track to, he looked at it, and he just went, yum. You know, and some other kids gave him a track, and he'd eat those. It kind of got to be a joke. You know, and I've heard about you know, feeding on the Word of God, but they, they, these guys just scoffed and ridiculed the message of God's grace as the world still does today. I pray for those guys still hoping that at some point in their life they realized how silly, how, the one, how ridiculous he looked as uh, he ate the tracks and swallowed them. Never had that happen before. Hope I never have that happen again. But when we talk about saved, what are we talking about? The definition for saved is the deliverance from the power and effects of sin. When we talk about the doctrine of salvation, we're talking about the deliverance from the power and effects of sin. It's preservation from destruction. That's what I tell the guy today. It's preservation from destruction, preservation from hell. That's what salvation is. It's being rescued. It's being delivered from a Christless eternity, but that's only one side of the coin. Now, that's an important side of the coin. When I came to know Christ, it was because I was scared to death I was going to die and go to hell. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I was lost. I knew I believed that hell was real. But on that side of that coin, that coin of salvation, it was deliverance from that suffering. It was deliverance from, the, uh, from, dis, from destruction. On the other side of that coin is the idea of a free gift. Salvation is God's free gift of eternal life. On one side, it's, I'm not going to die and go to hell. I have been delivered. On the other side, there is that gift of eternal life that God who loves me offers to all 
they'll only believe. That coin of salvation represents a perfect relationship with God. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. How many of you are glad it doesn't stop there? You glad it doesn't stop there? For the wages of sin is death, folks. That would be curtains for every person here. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what salvation is. It's the gift of eternal life. The most important realization that as we look at this doctrine this morning that we need to come to is the realization that you can't earn it. No amount of works, no amount of good deeds, no amount of trying to change your own life to make you a good person is going to change your standing before our holy, righteous God. Your labor is not going to bring you one iota closer to God from His perspective. You are already as close to God the Father as you could ever be or ever want to be because you are in God the Son. When He saved you, He saved you with a perfect salvation. He loves you with a perfect love. He loves you with graciousness abounding. He couldn't give you more grace. There's no such thing as more grace. When He saves you, He saves you perfectly. And He loves you in His Son. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at service. We're going to be looking at works, that we've been created under good works, that it's our reasonable service. Why it's our reasonable service? So this morning, we're not talking about service. We're talking about salvation. So when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ... There's absolutely nothing you can do except what His Word says you have to do in order to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The salvation comes first, then the service, which is your reasonable service. You serve because you're grateful, you serve out of appreciation, you serve out of love, you serve out of purpose. But we're not saved by our efforts or anything we could do to draw closer to God. Works are good for us. And I think it's, it's, it's imperative that we do because we're, we're created under good works. And the, that workmanship is, a, is a, a fascinating word. In the Greek, it's poema. Poema. It means masterpiece. Or we, actually, we get the word poem from that Greek word. You are God's poem. You are His masterpiece. 
And God delights in working in you and working through you and bringing about the changes. Uh, Philippians 1.6 says, Now to him who's begun his good work in you, what's he going to do? Perform it. He's going to perform that work that he's begun in your life. And he delights to do that because you're his workmanship created under good works. When he saved you, he didn't save you to sit. When he saved you, he didn't save you to go, okay, that's done. Boy, he saved you to be that minister of the word of reconciliation so other people could hear the truth and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing. And how do they hear? Unless you speak. Unless you share what God's word says about that salvation. Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by his mercy, he saves us. What a glorious God we serve. Aren't you glad that during this dispensation, the grace of God, that it's not all about our works, it's not all about what we do, trying to measure up, trying to climb that spiritual ladder to appease and satisfy God. That's religion. That's religion. The salvation that God offers is not a salvation based on religion. It's based on a relationship that he invites you to have personally with him. What a plan of salvation. See, that's how I know it's true, because if man had generated this, had man come up with, with this plan of salvation, it would, it would detail the works that you were necessary to do. It would have a whole list of things that you are supposed to do in order to appease God. And folks, most churches today have that list. Most churches today, there's a list of things that they demand. It amazes me. It grieves me at the number of things that man determines needs to be done in order to make them right with God. Here at St. Louis Bible, uh, St. Louis Bible, uh, St. Louis Bible Fellowship Church, Bible Fellowship, STLBF. What we believe here at this church is our salvation is based on Christ Jesus and what he's done. All glory, all praise, all adoration, all realization of the spiritual connection that we have with him is based on everything he has done, not any work that we have done. Now, we're criticized sometimes for that because people will say, well, you got to do something. You got to do something. You got to do something. Yeah, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You believe that he died for your sins. You believe he was buried. You believe he rose again. You believe the gospel. And God makes you that new creature. He brings about the change in your life. It amazes me the number of things that people say, well, that's not quite enough. Oh, yes, it is. 
What in the world could we possibly add to the all-sufficiency of the death of Christ? And I guarantee you the only reason man does this, adds these things we're going to look at, is because he doesn't believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ. Man believes he's got to do a little bit of something to make him all right with God. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are none righteous, no, not one, except Christ Jesus himself, and we're in him. Why in the world would we think that, that these works of righteousness could get us any closer to God than the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ? That's what I'm going to believe. That's what I'm going to base my salvation on. So many churches demand, well, you've got to be water baptized. You've got to be water baptized as if that dunking or that sprinkling or that pouring is going to make it any different. That's why it's important to rightly divide the word of truth and understand that that water baptism is for the nation of Israel, well, actually for the priests and that ceremonial cleansing that they had to go through in order to identify themselves as Israel's priests. That's part of the law. And God's, God's proclamation for Israel was that you're going to be my nation of priests. And John the Baptist came baptizing, identifying them with Israel as that nation of priests that's to go to the entire world. God says in Ezekiel, I'll sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean, talking to the nation of Israel. Water baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. Absolutely. If you're a sinner, the only difference in water baptism is you go in dry and you come out wet. That is the only thing that takes place. But there is a baptism that we wholeheartedly preach and declare. And that is that baptism of the Holy Spirit that takes place a moment a person acknowledges, a moment a person believes that Christ died for their sins, was buried, and rose again. That one baptism that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit does, baptizing you, placing you, immersing you into Christ. That's the baptism of this present dispensation. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I've told you many times I wasn't good in math in high school. I'm still not. But I know this equation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body talking about the body of Christ. So how many bodies are there? One. There's one spirit. How many spirits are there? Even as you are called in one hope of your calling. How many callings do you have? One. Verse 5. There's one Lord. How many lords are there? There's one faith. One baptism. That baptism has nothing to do with water. It has everything to do with what 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 tells us. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 12. Let's start with verse 12, Tim. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink unto one Spirit. Water baptism is just a work that the Jews, the nation of Israel, absolutely had to surrender to as a ceremonial washing and cleaning to prepare themselves to be that nation. Hey, maybe that's something we ought to go over here one of these days in in a message. Going from the Scripture to see exactly what, what it says in God's holy word. But there's one baptism. And there's absolutely, as a matter of fact, I think it is a slap in the face of God to require that a person be water baptized. I think when you see that taking place, what they are saying is, Christ, your death is not all sufficient. And I'll guarantee you this. Well, no, never mind. Maybe later. The other thing, the other work of righteousness that is not required for salvation, it is part of a believer's life. And that is repentance. It doesn't do a bit of good for an unsaved man to repent. To repent means to change the direction you're going. How many of us know men and women who tried to change the direction their lives were going, but only to end up in failure again? They can't do it. In order to be saved, what you must do, we're going to look at, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is repentance part of a believer's life? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what repentance means is changing the direction. You're going one way and you meet Christ. And you become a believer. And you know that the direction you were going was to destruction. It was on the the wide road. It was not pleasing to God. And so you change the direction you're going and going, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. So when people say, nope, you have to repent and you have to be baptized, and they'll take you to to Acts 2.38, where Peter told the Jews who were gathered there on the day of Pentecost, after he told them that they had crucified the Son of God, he called them murderers, and they were pricked in their heart on this day of Pentecost, which is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, not the beginning of the church, the body of Christ. These believers in Jehovah, the reason they had gathered there is because they were believers in God. They were God's covenant people. And when they realized that they were responsible, that God was holding them responsible for the death of His Son, God said, and they said, what must we do? It's interesting. They didn't say, what must we do to be saved? 
That's not what they ask. When they heard that they were guilty of crucifying Christ himself, they just said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent, change the direction you're going, and be baptized. That bapti- they understood that was John's baptism. That was the baptism to, uh, to prepare them to be that nation of priests that they will be during the millennial kingdom. That's another good topic we need to discuss one of these days. But the works of water baptism don't save you. I, I, but, and I know people will say, well, yeah, but it's, it's an outward showing of an inward change. Or it, it depicts the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's fine, folks, if you can show me chapter and verse where it tells us to do that in the Scripture. It's not there. Water baptism was not a, a, a showing. It wasn't a testimony of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. No, never in God's word are we told to do it for that reason. Well, it's a testimony that you have been saved. Where is that scripturally? It's not there. Don't let being dunked or sprinkled on, or poured on, be a testimony that you've been saved. Let the very life you live and the testimony that you have with others be that which just broadcasts to a a world. See, it's kind of easy to get away with, well, I was water baptized, therefore I don't need to do anything else. Well, for your salvation, you don't need to do anything. But for your testimony, it's not in the tank. It's in your life. That you are that testimony of God's grace and mercy to others. So water baptism, repentance. And you may wonder why we don't have the kind of invitation that a lot of churches have where we ask you to stand and then walk down to the altar. Number one, we don't have an altar. We don't need an altar. An altar was for the sacrifice. Our sacrifice has been done complete don't ever say we have an altar because folks we don't have an altar and the reason we don't have a get up out of your seat and come forward and shake the preacher's hand is because i've talked to too many people who've said well yeah i'm saved i walked i went forward it's not the reason you're saved let me tell you the reason you're saved is because you believe you took god at his word and you did exactly what god's word says you need to do and besides what about all those people who were saved before Charles Finney said, I know what let's do, let's get them up out of their seats and have them come forward. What about the people that were saved before Charles Finney? I mean, that was not even introduced until the 1800s. George Whitefield did a little bit of it, but what he did is he, his doctrine was so messed up, he told everybody, well, stand and come forward if you want to be married to Christ, and I'll marry you to Christ. Doctrinally, my mind explodes over those type of things. But I don't want anyone to think that their salvation is based on the fact that they stood up and they walked forward and God's going to save them because they did that. No. A lot of people say, well, I just need to start going to church more faithfully. As much as I love to see you here, 
as much as I think it's important for us to go to church and to assemble ourselves together, that's not going to appease God either. Going to church and trying to straighten your life out, that's not going to appease God. Here's the good news. God the Father has been appeased through the sacrificial death of His Son on Calvary's cross. And for us to think that there's any kind of work or deed or effort that we can do that's going to make God more satisfied than that perfect sacrifice on Calvary's cross is in such gross error that we need to be ashamed, ashamed of ourselves. I'm going to take God at His Word, and I'm going to do exactly what God's Word tells us that we need to do. I am not going to promote water baptism. I am not going to report a re, uh, uh, support that you've got to repent before you can get saved. That repentance comes after you're saved. I'm not going to support walking down an aisle. Coming to church or giving money. Or giving money. You notice here we never really teach on tithing. There's a reason for that. Tithing was under the law. We're not under the law. We promote giving and offerings, but you'll never hear us talk about tithes and offering. God owns 100% of what I have, not 10%. That was under the law. And if they didn't give 10%, they are stealing from God according to Malachi 3. But anyway, that's, that's another topic would make some good preaching. We'll do that one of these days. What we need to understand is when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that our standing with God changes. In Adam we all die. In Christ we're all made alive. In Christ we're made new creatures. But in Adam we all die. But for those who believe in Christ... We're made new creatures. When we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus and His finished and complete work, we are made complete in Christ. Nothing lacking. Fully furnished. That's what that word complete means. Thoroughly, fully furnished. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 10, and you are complete in Him. But only after you've done this and this and this and this. That's not what it says. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You've been buried with Him in baptism. That baptism is Luke 12, 50, talking about His baptism unto death. 
wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised us up from the dead and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Friends, that's what I'm going to believe. That's what I'm going to trust in for my salvation is that complete and finished work of Christ Jesus on Calvary's cross. So what do we need to do to be saved? Acts 16, 31. Philippian jailer came rushing in to Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? He, he screams. He brought them out and he says, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Now the house, what that phrase means is, and this also goes for your house. Wanting to, I mean, that's, you need to share this with them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There was absolutely nothing else that he had to do. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Or this goes for your house. Also, believe. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he was buried for you. Believe that he rose again for you. That's what you need to do. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. And the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can it get any simpler than what we need to do as we preach this faith of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone said, aha, but it says there you've got to confess him. You've got to confess him with your mouth. If you don't confess him with your mouth, then you're, you're not saved. There's the work. No, 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 no. I've found a work here. You got to do. Well, something important here as we examine this, it doesn't say you have to confess to man. Did anyone see the word man in there? Thou shalt confess to the guy sitting next to you with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in your heart. It doesn't say you confess to man. Who do you confess to? To the Lord. Lord, I acknowledge that you are God of all. I recognize, I acknowledge, I admit to being a sinner. I confess that you are Lord of all, and by faith I trust in you. And it, what's amazing to me? Well, to confess means to acknowledge and to admit to. But why is the mouth here to be taken literally when no one takes, you don't believe with your heart. Do you believe with your heart? I mean, hearts. I mean, if you believe, it's with your your head. But but it's thought the heart is sort of the seat of emotion. But your heart doesn't. It's not the organ that believes. So you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Well, okay, that's symbolic. We understand that. 
Well, why in mouth too? Why in the mouth symbolic? And if you have to confess with your mouth, because people have said that before, you better have an altar call. Well, don't have an altar. And second, we're not going to do it. But uh, you, you, they need to confess. They need an opportunity to confess. Well, if you have to confess, that means there's not a single mute that can be saved. You ever thought about that? Now, what that confession means to yeah, well, you have to confess. You have to admit. You have to acknowledge. And it even says that, that Jesus is Lord. And that's not lordship salvation. He's not talking about you, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. That's not what he's talking about. Folks, I've got to tell you something. That's another false doctrine, this lordship salvation nonsense. You can't make Jesus Lord. He already is. What you're doing is you're acknowledging that He is Lord. You're admitting to the fact that He is Lord. You can't make Him anything He's not already, and He's already Lord. It just bumfuddles me. So often, some of the doctrine that comes out from tradition, but whosoever believes by faith, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, that's that confession. They're calling on the name of the Lord. I remember the day that I got saved. I heard the gospel. I went home and I got on my knees and I called out to the Lord. I admitted, I acknowledged who He was and what I wasn't. Perfect. But when I got off my knees, I was perfect in Christ. Didn't know that then. Didn't know that then. Didn't understand that then. And, and real quick, I know people go to Matthew 10, 33. And Christ says, you know, if you, can, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you don't confess me, I'm not going to confess you. I'd make another good sermon. But I had, all of chapter 10 is about the coming tribulation. And going along with Revelation 2, verse 13, it talks about the same thing. And whosoever shall deny me before men, him also will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. All of chapter 10 is about the coming tribulation and what they are to expect and what's going to be the marching orders during that time. That is not the marching orders for this present dispensation of the grace of God. That's why rightly dividing the word of truth is so important in order for us to preach the correct message of salvation. And the bottom line, which is the right message of salvation? Is it Luke 18, 18, where the rich young ruler comes to Christ and he says, Master, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Another way of saying that is, what should I do to be saved? What did the Lord say to him? Verse 19 tells us, and Jesus said unto him, why do you call me good? None is good save one, and that is God. Verse 20, Tim. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. What does the young, rich young ruler say? Hey, I've done all these from my youth. Christ says, okay, then sell everything you have and you come follow me. If you want to know how to be saved, can I stand up here this morning and tell you that you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? And I qualify. Is, is that the message that I can preach today 
to sell everything. Don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Keep the law, basically, and you're going to be saved. Well, number one, you can't do that. And that's not the message of salvation for today. What about Acts 2.38? When Peter tells them, we've already talked about that, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Is that the message for today? Hey, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, that, I, I can't stand and, and preach that. You're not Israel. Mark 16, 16. This was the Lord Jesus himself who said, Whosoever he that believeth and is baptized, he was talking about water baptism there, shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Believe what? The verses right before that talk about the kingdom. That the kingdom was about to be offered. That they were about that, that promise of God. Baptism was absolutely necessary during that time in order to identify them as that kingdom of priests. Or is it Acts 16.31? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Somebody said that's, and I don't know who coined this phrase, but it aggravates me. Well, that's just easy believism. It's so easy, why don't more people do it? I think because salvation is so simple that people reject it. You want to see more people become religious? Then provide a long list of do's and don'ts and tell them to follow this and they'd go, okay, buddy, I'm on board with that. But when you say, do what God's Word says, and understand that he took it upon himself, and all you have to do is by faith believe. They don't want any of that. They don't want any of that. That's easy believism. Well, okay, so what else do you do? When, when somebody says that, what you preach is easy believism. Well, okay. What else, do, what else should we do then? T tell me, what, what should we do? You know what they start doing? baptism, the repentance, the walking down that, it all, now, and again, next week, talking about service, because you're not going to get off the hook that easy, okay, I'm, I don't want you to think that, well, I'm, now I'm saved, and I can sit back, and, and glory be, I can just do anything, and everything I want to do, and, whoo, bring on the rapture, uh-uh, but for your salvation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And this goes for your house also, your family. Go and tell them that's what they must do to be saved also. The other phrase that just sends me up the wall is cheap grace. Don't ever mention that around me. I'll tell God on you. There is absolutely nothing cheap about anything our God gives us. And grace comes from Him. There is no such thing as cheap grace. It cost him his only begotten son. It cost God, God himself, his life. Well, what must you do to be saved? Let's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What about you this morning? Have you placed your faith in Christ? In Him alone? Have you believed 
by faith that he died for you, was buried and rose again? Are you putting your faith in membership or affiliation with this church? Don't do it. That's not saving faith. Have you placed your faith in the water baptism or your confirmation or something that took place where you didn't really believe or you... I just wanted to add to that all-sufficiency. I wanted to add to the work of Christ. Don't do it. You honor God. You glorify His Son. When you come before Him and say, I don't bring a work, that wouldn't satisfy Even religious works, I don't bring simply to the cross. I claim that saving faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And fathers, we bow our hearts and our minds before you. Father, we come acknowledging that you are the true and only God. You are the only one who saves And Father, you purchased our redemption through Calvary's cross, through the shed blood of your only begotten Son. Father, may we never attempt to add or confuse, but Father, may we come before you acknowledging that you are the one who saves. And that, Father, after we acknowledge that you are the one who saves and by faith we believe and we're made that new creation by your work that you do the justifying, you do the glorifying, you do the sanctification. Father, you do all the work. You do the redemption. You do it all. And, Father, may we then get up off our knees and may we get to work for you out of love and of appreciation, understanding that you've made us the ministers of the word of reconciliation. We have a job to do. Father, we are new creatures. Now, Father, make us brave ministers. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.